Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'd like to offer a special welcome also for our uh, viewers on C-SPAN, who will be joining us uh, now and later. Um, my name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. Our forum today concerns a new book, Not Invited to the Party, How the Dumb Republicans Have Rigged the System and Left Independents Out in the Cold. Let me begin uh, by giving us some framework and some uh, ideas about today's event. We will hear, hear from our speakers uh, first for about an hour or so, and then that will be followed by a question and answer period from the audience. Around 1.30 or so, we shall break for lunch when you'll have an additional chance to talk with uh, the authors and the speakers about uh, the issues raised in today's forum. I am also admonished by our staff here that I should respectfully request that you turn off your cell phones, and that means turn them off so we don't get that, quote, weird buzzing sound on the uh, television. Thank you very much for that. So to our event. The Cato Institute, as many of you may know, stands for Individual Liberty and Limited Government. Competition offers a means to these ends. Competition in markets expresses liberty and creates choices. Electoral competition offers alternatives to voters and constrains government to the popular will, and indeed, as James Madison himself well understood. Classical liberals will thus be skeptical of government efforts to suppress electoral competition by fostering or protecting any party or the two major parties in the United States today. We should also say that uh, third parties in other countries are associated with systems of proportional representation, and that in those systems we, we can see, for example, that classical liberalism has a, what would one say is a pure form of representation. I'm thinking, for example, of the free Democrats in Germany, who sometimes hold power in that country, hold significant uh, offices in that country, and really bring a libertarian vision to meet with public policy and law in, in that nation. In the end, classical liberals are likely to say, I think, though we'll hear more today about this, that more competition is better than less, and that government control over electoral competition is unlikely to serve the cause of liberty in the long run. Consequently, third parties in the American system, their access to the ballot and to the electoral system, are worth talking about, and that's what we're going to do today. Our first speaker will be our author, Jim Bennett. Jim is an eminent scholar at George Mason University and holds the William Snavely Chair of Political Economy and Public Policy in the Department of Economics and is director of the Olin Institute for Employment Practice and Policy. He received his PhD in 1970 from Case Western Reserve and is specialized in research related to public policy issues, the economics of government and bureaucracy, labor unions, and health charities. He is founder and editor of the Journal of Labor Research and has published more than 60 articles in professional journals such as the American Economic Review, Public Choice, and others. He has written many books, of which I shall mention one to you. He is the uh, author of Destroying Democracy, How Government Funds Partisan Politics, published by the Cato Institute in 1986. I ask you please to welcome Jim Bennett, our author today.
Thanks much, John. Um, and thanks to our host here, Cato Dave Bowes, who was a little bit surprised when he learned that uh, Ralph Nader had written a forward to this book. Uh, my credentials suddenly crumbled. Uh, but that's, that's, that's all right. Uh, and afterward was written by Bill Redpath, who is chair of the Libertarian National Committee. So I'm sandwiched between the two extremes of the political spectrum, and I think it's a great thing. Something's got to be seriously wrong, folks, when you've got Ralph Nader praising my work on the one hand and Bill Redpath on the other. Uh, as John mentioned, I'm a professor of economics at George Mason, and we pride ourselves on uh, our specialty in the field of what's called public choice. This is the economics of politics. And I came to this issue because of the fact that I began to notice that candidates other than Democrats and Republicans, despite the excitement that they started with, soon faded in the political arena and were not really considered seriously by the time the elections arose. And I began to wonder what was going on. And uh, as an academic, of course, one of the first things that you do is you say, well, what else has been done in this field? And I found very little has been done by the uh, political science uh, fraternity or the political science academics. And apparently to political sciences, the domination of politics by the demo-publicans, what I call the Democrats and Republicans, you may recall that, uh, or at least I do, I'm old enough, um, and that's why I'm using notes, uh, that George Wallace, uh, in his campaign in 1968, pointed out that there's not a dime's worth of Democrats between the Republicans and the uh, and the Democrats, and I, so that's why I call them the demo publicans. And it's for, to the political science uh, uh, community apparently having the demo uh, publicans dominate the field is not only how things are, but also how they should be. And I, I, I take exception to that. And it seems many voters also have apparently come to, to the conclusion that voting for candidates outside the Republicans is somehow suspect, if not unpatriotic or even subversive. So we need new approaches to problems. We need more issues put before the American voters. We need to widen the range of political debate, and that's what these third parties and so on have done. Third parties have traditionally challenged the status quo, and they have led to change and new ideas and so on. And throughout our nation's history, particularly before the Civil War, we had really dozens of different parties. Some interesting names, just to throw them out quickly. The Mugwumps, the Anti-Masons, the Know-Nothings, Bull Moose, and of course more recently the Conservative Party, the Libertarians, the Greens, the Reform Party, and so on and so forth. Many of these parties had good ideas. The Liberty Party, for example, was abolitionist and opposed slavery. Some of them have ideas that aren't so good. For example, we had the Prohibition Party, and you can imagine uh, what their agenda was. So early in the nation's history, we had many parties, rough and tumble politics, and by the way, a very high rate of turnout in elections. What happened to change all of this? Elections and virtually all political discourse is now dominated by the Democrats and the Republicans. Now, being a libertarian, 
one of the first things I do is to go to that document that a lot of people don't put a lot of credence in today, which is the Constitution of the United States, and ask, what does it say about political parties? And the answer is nothing. However, in the debate about the Constitution, Federalist Papers and our patriots such as James Madison and uh, Benjamin Franklin and so on, a great deal was said about the notion of faction. Faction, in today's terminology, is special interest, and political parties were considered to be special interest uh, who wanted to use the power of the state to benefit themselves and the, uh, their members. Even today, surveys have shown throughout the world deep public distrust of political parties everywhere. In polling, political parties are ranked in public esteem lower than lawyers. Yes, yes, lower than lawyers. That tells you something. Nevertheless, we have political parties, and by the end of the Civil War, the Dems and the Republicans were entrenched as the two major political party parties, a duopoly controlling politics. How did this occur? There's a number of reasons, and I will talk about four. First was the elimination of multi-member districts. At-large elections were sharply restricted by the Apportionment Act of 1842 that required congressmen to be elected in single-member districts so that candidates winning the, votes, the most votes um, is the sole representative. French sociologist Maurice Duverger uh, showed that the simple majority single ballot system strongly favors two parties. This is a phenomenon known as Diverger's Law. Voting for a long shot candidate who might prevail as third or fourth choice in a multi member election is widely review, uh, viewed today as throwing away one's vote uh, in, a, in a winner take all system. So it discourages. Single-member districts discourages voting for third parties and independent candidates. And incidentally, I might add, the Electoral College's winner-take-all practice also encourages the two-party system. Politically, however, single-member districts make some sense in today's world. You can think of, for example, the concern of people in upstate New York about being dominated by the people in Manhattan and so on and so forth. Now, the second and in my view, the most important uh, impediment to third parties is the so-called government reform. You know, when libertarians hear that government is being reformed by politicians, we always grab our wallets. And the idea of the Australian ballot is that the government will, prevent, will print and provide the ballots. Prior to the uh, 19, 1890s, ballots were privately printed by the parties themselves so that any party could print up a ballot with any slate of candidates that they wanted. But in the 1890s, in response to a lot of corruption that occurred in the, in the uh, 1888 elections, governments began to supply a single consolidated ballot for all candidates for all offices. This was the Australian ballot. And by 1910, only two states did not use the Australian ballot. By the way, one of those, South Carolina, uh, permitted uh, the use of, of private ballots up until about 1950. 
Control of the ballot by government allowed government to control who gets on the ballot. And a major justification for the Australian ballot is that non-serious candidates can be excluded. As those patronizing, condescending elites who know what is best for the rest of us are well aware, too many choices confuse the voters. So we have to, you know, look after the voters to avoid confusion there. The major parties never had an act, uh, never did and still don't have a problem getting their candidates on the ballot because access is based on the number of votes received in the previous election. But candidates and parties outside the duopoly have serious impediments due to ballot access laws. Some states require tens of thousands of valid signatures on petitions just to appear on the state ballot. In Oklahoma, in, in, in 2008, for example, more than 40,000 signatures were required just to get, appear on the ballot. And the emphasis here is on the word valid. The slightest discrepancy can have not only a name thrown out, but a whole page of petitions. For example, John introduced me as Jim Bennett. And if I put down my name as James T. Bennett in my address and then signed it Jim Bennett, that would be considered, you know, a bad and an invalid uh, petition signing. Uh, Failing to dot an I, failing to cross a T, all these kinds of things can invalidate whole pages. So the real issue is you probably need 10 or 20 percent more than the minimum in order to be assured to get on the ballot. And the Democrats and the Republicans each election hire lawyers and so on to challenge these petitions. And the third party candidate needs to, of course, hire counsel to oppose the counsel that the uh, duopoly brings to uh, 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 to bear on the problem. Stringent access laws spread like wildfire in the 1930s to thwart the Communist Party candidates, although the Communist Party was never a serious contender in any election. But the same restrictions that applied to the Communist Party also applied to the third parties and the independent candidates, but certainly not to the Democrats and the Republicans. Put simply, Clearing the hurdles throughout the nation merely to get on the ballot often exhausts both the energies and the resources of independent candidates and third parties. In the 2008 elections, over 1.5 million valid signatures were needed if a third party was to appear on the ballot in every state in the union. Couple these onerous petition requirements with early filing deadlines and for third, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans are on the ballot by definition, so they don't worry about filing de- deadlines. But when you are submitting petitions, they often have to be presented weeks or months in advance of the time that uh, 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 prior to the uh, uh, printing of the ballots. So this also imposes serious expense and difficulties for uh, the uh, uh, people outside of the duopoly. Third-party candidates are often viewed as spoilers, out to deny uh, 
the Democrats and the Republicans their rightful offices. Witness, for example, the scorn heaped on Ralph Nader, who was inappropriately blamed for denying the inventor of the internet the presidency. In truth, ballot clutter really has never occurred. And after all, even kooks who want to be on the ballot have some rights, at least they did under the Constitution. What has been sold to the American public as a good government measure is simply a way to eliminate political competition at the ballot box. There are other laws that the demo publicans have passed as well to impede and, if not eliminate, challengers. So-called sore loser laws prevent those who lost in a primary from then running as an independent uh, and taking votes away from the party on which that, uh, they ran in the, in, in, the, in the primary. And our fusion laws prevent having a candidate endorsed by multiple parties which would uh, benefit independent candidacies. The uh, Republicans and the Democrats, however, don't ever fuse. By enacting such laws, the Democrats have used the power of government to stifle and oppress third parties and independent con uh, candidates. Little wonder that turnout is so low that we typically have, um, because we typically have only a, a realistic choice between Tweedledee and Tweedledumber at the uh, ballot box. <coughs> a third impediment, and I have to use that word again, is campaign reform. Again, once anytime you hear that politicians are reforming something, the news for the general public is inevitably bad. Money is the lifeblood of politics. Taxpayer funding of campaigns and even conventions also benefits the Democrats and the Republicans. Federal law limits contributions by individuals, thus squelching the possibility that an independent might make an effective run for office with just a couple of well-heeled backers. With the government money, however, come strings, and these strings inevitably benefit the duopoly. And they, of course, impede challengers. The good government side of campaign reform is just another way of privileging the elite over outsiders and protecting the status quo. All these so-called limits were neatly skirted with loopholes. PAC contribu uh, uh, contributions were PACs arose, soft money, and all that kind of stuff. Corporations always looking for welfare handouts from government, have little interest in independence and third parties. Both the left and the right, in other words, Ralph and uh, uh, Bill Redpath down here, by the way, one, uh, they're sitting on opposite sides of the room, that may tell you something, are opposed, in my opinion, they agree on one thing certainly, and that is the ending of corporate welfare. If, but anyway... The vast majority of taxpayer dollars allocated for politics have naturally enriched the Republicans. The only uh, candidate who actually got a significant sum was Ralph Perot, Ross Perot in 1996, who got roughly one-eighth of the $234 million uh, um, distributed. But third parties and independents, even if they do get tax funds for their political campaigns, they get it after the election. So you need to get at least 5% of the vote in order to get any federal money. And, of course, 
you have to have the election before you can determine whether you get 5% of the vote. So the simple fact is that, you know, TV time bought in December when the election was in November is not terribly helpful. And by the way, of course, incumbents in office, which are typically the Democrats and the Republicans, already have enormous advantages over challengers, things like the congressional uh, frank, constituent newsletters, access to the media, gerrymandering and so, uh, districts, and so on. In short, the Demopublican version of campaign uh, finance reform is little more than an incumbent protection act to exclude outsiders. The fourth impediment involves the media. Here we have a self-fulfilling prophecy. The media refuses to give serious news coverage to independents because they're unlikely to win. And of course, independents are unlikely to win because the Republicans have used the power of government to harass them at every turn and minimize their participation in the election process, which excludes them from media coverage. If you can't get your views and positions out to the public and make yourself known, you certainly aren't going to get elected. In yet another of those good government moves, the Demopublicans established the Commission on Presidential Debates in 1987 to decide who will appear and the rules for participating. Guess who can co-chairs this group? It's headed by the former chairman of the Democratic and the former chairman of the Republican National Committees. So you can bet your last nickel that the commission has little interest in bringing new ideas and non-duopoly candidates to the general public. To participate, you had to get 15% of the vote in the previous election, which of course guarantees a role for the Democrat and the Republican candidate. But other candidates were shut out. And incidentally, even getting 15% doesn't guarantee you too much when the Demopublicans are there because Ralph Ross Perot got 19% uh, and in 1976 uh, was denied access to the debates, even though he got well over the limit in 1992. Hey, hypocrisy is not the strong point. Uh, uh, is, is, is not a serious consideration when it comes to political maneuverings. Uh, and we can talk a little bit about the, the United States uh, signing the uh, Copenhagen document of the uh, Helsinki Accords, which talks about political freedoms uh, that require a clear separation between the state and political parties. Yeah, right. And the signatories uh, agree to respect the right of citizens to seek political or public office individually or as a representative of political parties without discrimination. Yeah, right. Well, as I mentioned before, hypocrisy is not a serious problem when it comes to politics. And I'll just note, by the way, that in Iran in the last presidential election, they had some seven candidates. And of course, we're pointing the finger at us for uh, uh, the way we do, we do things. Now, in my book, I discuss in some detail the role of third party and independent candidates in the 2008 election. And more accurately, they're almost unfortunate non-role in that election. And I briefly survey how other developed countries conduct elections. It's sufficient at this point to say that virtually everywhere, parties are increasingly become a part of the apparatus of the state through subsidies. However, ballot access laws are typically nowhere near as severe as those here in the so-called land of the free. Now, let me wrap up 
because there are people here who've had a lot more in, uh, experience with this with a, in a hands-on sense that I do, and I think that you know they should have uh, time. I, like I say, I, I'm an ivory tower academic. But I'd like to suggest what should be done. First, I'll talk about ideally what I would like to see done. Ideally, we need to dramatically reduce the size and scope of government. We need to sharply reduce its powers and the privileges it hands out. We need to slash government spending and transfer payments. To be honest, in my view, a great deal of what the government does at all levels is simply unconstitutional. A limited government would mean that who actually serves in government doesn't matter very much. And the incentives to restrict participation in elections would also decline markedly. We would benefit by taking some lessons on government from the Swiss. The typical Swiss citizen can't tell you who the president is because it really doesn't matter that much. Now, having advanced my ideal solution, I must admit that it has about the same likelihood of being adopted as the likelihood that I'm struck by a meteorite on the way home from this event. <coughs> and if we try to repeal the operation of divergers law by having multi-member district, that is an appealing idea, but it's unlikely to happen simply because of the differences between, say, rural districts and, and urban districts and so on and so forth. And it's also unlikely that we're going to be able to ever return to the uh, uh, privately printed paper ballots. Uh, a lot of this has to do with what happened down in uh, uh, Florida. Realistically, what we need to do is to deregulate the election, the election process, get government out of politics. First, repeal all ballot access laws. Modern technology, it seems to me, can cope with many candidates. In the unlikely event that suddenly everyone wants to run for the presidency or public office, we could set reasonable limits for ballot access. Say, you know, you have to get 500 signatures and have a modest filing fee, say $2,500 or so, and have the filing fee refundable if you get, say, 1,000 votes, whatever. Repeal sore loser and anti-fusion laws. Three, repeal all restrictions on campaign finance. All donations would be legal, you know, despite the source of the amount. But I would suggest we require prompt and public disclosure on the Internet. Under my scheme, politicians could still be bought, yeah, but we would know at least who was doing the buying and all party subsidies for the taxpayer. And I think Bill Redpath, in his afterward, has a wonderful idea about initiating instant runoff voting. Instead of picking just one candidate for office, voters would express their preference by ranking candidates one, two, three. If no clear majority at the outset, the person on the bottom's vote would be transferred to other candidates. Now, this would give a great deal of interest in independent candidates because of the fact that uh, uh, the public would be interested in these people. And in addition, another major blessing would be that it would probably reduce greatly negative campaigning. For those of us who live in this area, uh, I've heard more about a 20-year-old master's thesis than I want to even talk about. So those are basically my suggestions. 
And uh, John has given me a thing saying I have one minute. So before, you know, I'm accused of aggression or something, which is against libertarian principles, I'll sit down. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before turning to uh, Teresa, I wanted to mention, uh, uh, single out or recognize three of our distinguished guests today. Uh, first, as was mentioned, Ralph Nader, who uh, ran as a third-party presidential candidate twice, at least. <laughs> Ralph's, Ralph's been coming to Cato. I've seen him. This is the second time in just a couple of months. You keep doing that, Ralph. Either you're going to become a libertarian or we're going to become Naderites. And, uh, I don't know which I don't know which one. Bo both will happen. And mentioning uh, Bill Redpath, the National Libertarian Party is here also. Welcome. And finally, Christina Tobin of the Free and Equal Elections Organization. Now, if you live in California and vote in California, you might want to keep the name Christina Tobin in mind as uh, time passes. Uh, I should say that doesn't constitute an endorsement of the Cato Institute. It's simply a rogue element at the Cato Institute exercising freedom of speech. I live in a deep fear of uh, violating campaign finance laws somehow. Uh, Teresa Amato is the author of Grand Illusion, our next book, and she will be our next speaker, The Myth of Voter Choice in a Two-Party Tyranny. She was the national presidential campaign manager and in-house counsel for Ralph Nader in 2000 and 2004. Ms. Amato graduated from Harvard University and New York University Law School. She founded the Citizen Advocacy Center in suburban Chicago and works with many nonprofit organizations. Organization. She has been a fellow also at Harvard's Institute of Politics at the JFK School and a Wasserstein Public Interest Law Fellow at the Harvard Law School. A very fine speaker on this topic, Teresa Amato. Good afternoon, and thank you, John Samples, and thank you, Cato Institute, for hosting a forum on ballot access and on the important uh, discussion we're hearing today. Thank you, all of you, for coming, because this is quite a turnout to hear about systemic barriers to entry for third parties and independents in the political process. It's not the kind of thing that makes the front page of the major newspapers every day, and uh, it's very nice of you to share in this and uh, for this to be covered. So. Uh, I'd like to encourage other uh, think tanks and the media to host these kinds of uh, discussions because this is one of those topics you don't hear uh, quite often enough. And and um, let me say congratulations to Jim Bennett for producing an excellent book. Uh, you have a copy here, and I'm going to uh, hold it up again because uh, I read um, Jim Bennett's book, and uh, uh, first thing I noticed was in the first paragraph or so, he said uh, he took a, a swipe at lawyers, as you heard here, and I thought, <laughs> uh-oh. Uh, and then uh, later on, he makes a crack about uh, Harvard-trained people, and I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, throughout the book, he kind of uh, poo-poos uh, goo-goos, as he calls them, uh, people who work for good government, and I thought, gee, I spent my whole life doing that. And so um, when I read Jim's book, I thought, gee, I am Jim Bennett's perfect nightmare. <laughs> and uh, except for two things. One, I agree with the major premise of his book. And that is that the system is rigged 
it's rigged against the two parties, or, the, or rather, it's rigged in favor of the two parties to keep out challengers and competition from minor parties and independent candidates. And second, unlike uh, most academicians, uh, I have had uh, the experience of being in the arena twice, once for a minor party presidential candidate when Ralph Nader chose to run on the Green Party ticket in 2000, and once as a uh, uh, presidential national campaign manager for an independent, and that's when Ralph Nader chose to ran, run again in 2004, despite all of the uh, hullabaloo and outcry against his uh, right to present his uh, to views to the American people. And so I really, uh, unlike most people on the planet, because once you've run a national presidential campaign, you will never do it again, uh, <laughs> if you're sane, um, have had this experience uh, twice. So I have the battle scars, and I know uh, how difficult it is firsthand in order to be able to present alternative choices, more voices to the American people every four years when we host a national presidential election. So uh, I would have uh, probably agreed with 90% uh, of what Jim Bennett said up until the last five minutes, uh, <laughs> uh, and that's where we may diverge, in, uh, and I'm sure we do, in solutions. Uh, but uh, he, he he has uh, laid out uh, really a part of the problem, so I think what I will do instead is to tell you uh, some of the firsthand experiences uh, we had. And I'll start in uh, February of 2000. Uh, Ralph Nader uh, called me up, and he said, uh, well, would you like to uh, run my presidential campaign? And I said, uh, well, Ralph, you know, uh, I was in the middle of Illinois working for a nonprofit, and I said, Ralph, you know, the last campaign I ran was for student council. And uh, he said, that's all right, because this is going to be a very different kind of campaign. This is going to be a, a citizen's campaign. We're going to run with the people, and we're going to put all the issues that are not talked about by the two major parties on the table so that people have a chance uh, to communicate and talk about the things that are routinely shut out uh, from the national debate every time we have an election. And I... Uh, I, I thought about it, and I thought what he was trying to do, because he had spent four decades in Washington, and he knew what the score was and how difficult it was for citizens to make concrete change in Washington, D.C. He had seen uh, the government uh, uh, overrun by lobbyists and uh, uh, being marinated in corporate campaign cash, and he had uh, also a personal history of being able to open the process up, and I thought, well, if there were ever a time, this would be the time to do it. Uh, so I get to Washington, and, you know, I consider myself fairly well-read. I read the newspapers every day. I majored in government and economics. I went to law school. I thought, how hard can this be? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and then reality set in. You know, we all grow up under this myth that... Uh, Anyone can run and be president of the United States, right? This is the national lore. But if you try to be anyone and you're not the party favorite of one of the two major parties, woe to you. It is nearly impossible to run an effective national presidential campaign uh, outside of the two-party system. And that's because we have systemic barriers. Even if you have a supremely qualified candidate, even if you have 
popular support. We have systemic barriers that have made it difficult to compete, and there is no level playing field. So when Jim Bennett writes in his book, The System is Rigged and Nobody Cares, I know what of he speaks. Let's start with ballot access. Uh, well, actually, let's start back. Let's start with the regulatory system. Uh, if you haven't had the pleasure of reading 11 CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations uh, for Campaign Finance, uh, I suggest you do so. Uh, as one person I interviewed at the Federal Election Commission uh, uh, explained to me, it's like uh, asking a lawyer, or, or, or rather, I said, well, I'm a lawyer, you know, I, I'll, I'll be able to figure this out. And uh, he said, well, no, it's really like asking uh, a general practitioner, a doctor, to uh, perform brain surgery. And uh, you have to learn all of this uh, while you're doing your other job uh, 24-7. It is extremely difficult uh, to navigate the regulatory curly cues. And even though uh, even the people who work at the Federal Election Commission don't agree on what is in uh, uh, the Federal Election Commission code, and I'm sure we're going to hear about that from our uh, next speaker. Uh, worse, if you call up for information, you find out uh, the standard pat answer, and, and it really is a supremely uh, competent and talented uh, information division. It's not their fault. It's just that the regulations aren't written for third parties and independent candidates, and oftentimes they have no idea what the answer is as applied to third parties and independent candidates. Uh, so they will say, uh, uh, Ms. Amato, the code is silent. So you have to go and ask for an advisory opinion, and that could take months when you really needed the answer yesterday. That's one problem. Uh, the other problem is that uh, people don't agree on what the code says. And, of course, the, uh, the third problem is that uh, uh, really the code is not written for a grassroots kind of campaign. In fact, somebody at the FEC actually told me when I tried to paint a hypothetical uh, that, uh, uh, you know, these laws aren't written for a grassroots campaign. And I thought, gee, there's a big problem right there. Uh, so it's extraordinarily difficult if you don't come with a cottage industry of lawyers, uh, people who are savvy in, in, in how these laws have been applied, and uh, a, a fundamental background understanding, and really a standing mechanism or vehicle like a major party in order to navigate the regulatory framework. That having been said, um, I think that needs to be improved. I would not uh, agree to get rid of it, but we'll talk about that in, in a minute. The major hurdle every third party and independent candidate faces is 51 different ballot access laws. Jim painted some of the picture, but the reality and uh, the nightmare is uh, unbelievable because every single uh, third party candidate and independent will tell you the majority of their resources, all the blood, sweat, and tears goes to getting on the ballot because if you're not on the ballot, you're just not a choice. And this is a system set. These ballot laws, it's very important to note, are written by who? The Democrats and the Republicans who occupy the General Assemblies and the state legislatures in every one of the states. And so even though some of the states are quite reasonable, other states are off the charts, and they make it intentionally difficult, not only on the facial application, but if you actually try to follow through and submit these kind of signatures. Let's just start with the regulatory mechanism first, and I don't have any I don't know why we continue to do this, but we have irrationally 13,000 election jurisdictions over 
overseeing uh, our federal elections. And so you have a problem with, you have all these different jurisdictions, the knowledge uh, varies widely, and even if you call the states, uh, the Secretary of State or the Attorney General's Office or the Office of the Board of Elections or whoever, uh, whichever entity is regulating the um, elections in a particular state, uh, frequently you get um, you get something like they're not going to tell you what their law means. First of all, some of them don't know what their law says. Second, uh, they are uh, embarrassed that their laws on their books are patently unconstitutional and have been held such by the courts, but they can't get their general assemblies to actually change the law so that it comports with what the current uh, legal status is. And so you have to divine all of this. And third, oftentimes they're very uh, afraid that they might be sued, and so they don't want to tell you anything. Now, of course, this is very helpful if you want to run for office. Uh, the, the second reality is that these laws when you aggregate them across the 51, uh, 50 states in this, and, and uh, the District of Columbia as an aggregate burden makes it virtually impossible for, uh, for individuals who are outside of the two parties in or to be able to compete because you spend two-thirds of the campaign just getting to the starting point where the major two parties are. So you spend all your resources doing this. And then, of course, uh, there's all kinds of uh, side effects in terms of whether or not you are considered, uh, whether you've committed fraud, because the because Jim instead of James signed and all of those kinds of little um, uh, barriers that add up into the collective that we it's very rare that you get a candidate who is even able to put his or her name on all fifty ballots. In addition to that, you have a hostile media confronting you. In uh, the case of uh, Ralph's campaign in 2000, there were three or four New York Times editorials that basically said that he and Pat Buchanan should not even. Uh, be in the picture, they were, quote, cluttering the field. Just think about that. Since when is political competition cluttering the field? That is the disdain with which uh, the mainstream media looks upon independents and third-party candidates. It's very difficult to get a story. When you do get a story, it's generally about the horse race. How will you affect the chances of one of the two major parties? Not what is it, why is it that you're taking on this incredible burden and you want to talk to the American people and have a dialogue? And what is it that you're you're proposing? It's very rare to get a substantive story on the issues. It's more, um, you know, how are you going to affect so-and-so's chances? Well, you know, they never asked the Republican candidate, how are you going to affect the Democrat chances. Yeah, that's a ridiculous question. So why is it posed all the time as the starting uh, opening question for third party and independent candidates? The uh, media is incredibly hostile in part because we grow up in a culture of thinking that somehow we have enshrined a two-party system when the word party is not even in the Constitution. And then, of course, uh, the media is a big racket, uh, and so a lot of campaign money actually goes because we don't provide free airtime, uh, even though the uh, the airwaves are belong to the Commonwealth uh, to candidates. Uh, a lot of the campaign money has to go to buying spots, and some of those spots would cost uh, as much as the salary of people I work with uh, for a few minutes, uh, just because uh, it's so expensive to break into the media market. And then finally, if you want to produce your own media, like uh, we did in 2000, and then we had the pleasure of being sued because we exercised our free speech rights to parody MasterCard uh, for um, 
uh, copyright and trademark infringement, and then had to battle that uh, as well. So in addition to the media, the ballot access, the, the regulatory scheme, there's also, as uh, Jim alluded to, the Commission on Presidential Debates. It's a very official-sounding name, but it's really a private corporation that sits on New Hampshire Avenue and acts as a cartel in terms of who, which candidates get to reach tens of millions of people each year in order to be able, to, or each presidential election, in order to be able to put their points uh, to tens of millions of people in in uh, watching uh, in in um, in any kind of logical fashion. What they do is uh, they take an average of fifteen. You have to reach fifteen percent in the average of five polls in order to be considered uh, qualified. Because they made a very bad mistake in nineteen ninety two. Uh, they actually let Ross Perot in the debates, and so they never wanted to repeat that. And uh, as a consequence, you haven't seen a third party or independent candidate in the presidential debates. And so Ralph Nader could have gone to every stadium as he did, like the Fleet Center and Phil or Madison Square Garden and filled 20,000 people, and you'd never reach even a fraction of the the, pers- the proportion that you would reach on television, of course, with the imprimatur of these are the serious candidates that should be allowed to have a voice in the, in the election. Um, finally, I want to point out that there is... Um, uh, these are the practical uh, problems, but these are really the, the the answer and the solution to these are uh, fundamentally structural. We have a lot of band aid discussion, is what I would call um, what's going on now about election uh, perfection, and and there's a reason for that. So in 2000. People perceived, I believe wrongly, that because Ralph Nader uh, received 97,000 votes in Florida and the margin of difference between Al Gore and George Bush was 537 votes, that it was somehow all uh, Mr. Nader's fault that we ended up with George W. Bush. Uh, What I'd like to point out is that there were um, other minor party candidates, in fact, eight on the ballot, and all of them received more than 537 votes. That's not difficult. Of course, uh, there were a number of other uh, factors like uh, Catherine Harris, how we purge voter election rolls, uh, the Florida Supreme Court, the intervention of the United States Supreme Court. And uh, But what happened at the end of the day is it became some kind of a national meme that third parties or independents are quote-unquote spoilers. But it's really, really hard to spoil an already spoiled system. And these are, and, and it's spoiled because of the structural problems, but what engendered was that one of the two major parties, you can guess which one, the Democratic Party, in 2004 made it its mission to make sure that Ralph Nader would not get on the ballot and brought 24 lawsuits in the period of 12 weeks to try to stifle competition of the Democratic Party or its allies um, on the ground uh, in a number of states. And so I don't know how many of people here have been sued. Anybody here ever been sued? Yeah, okay, very rare. Uh, well, imagine getting 24 lawsuits in the period of 12 weeks before you had your cup of coffee. Ralph would start opening up debates, you know, waving a, su- a service of summons, saying, this is what democracy looks like. Now, that kind of systemic oppression to try to exclude third-party and independent candidates is something we just should never tolerate in this country. I think, fundamentally, all of the talk that it was uh, created from the 537 vote difference uh, difference in Florida, a lot of people, the good thing was that people started paying attention to what was going on in their boards of elections. They started thinking about uh, how do we register to people to vote? Why is it that we haven't 
opt-in system? Why is it that the local voter rolls don't match the ones in the state capitals? Why is it that there's chaos and everything is done at the last minute to enter new registered voters? Why, why don't we have same-day registration? What is this system and who's paying attention? What, why, why don't we have uniform standards of what counts as a vote? Isn't it ridiculous we have to be holding up uh, punch cards to the light and seeing if it has two hanging chad or three or uh, dimpled or pregnant or whatever? And, uh, and it was really almost uh, a mockery of uh, our system of governance that people looked at all around the world and said, what, the, what, what are they doing there in the United States? How come they can't determine what's a vote? How come they can't determine who's registered to vote? How come they can't determine uh, what, what grounds constitute proper grounds for an audit or a recount? How come the machines don't work? What, what is this? Why are we just asking these questions in the 21st century here in our country? But all that election perfection still won't give you an open and uh, equal competition if you don't have some reform to the systemic barriers to third-party and independent candidates. I'm going to stop now so that we can save more time for questions, but I hope you'll ask some. Thank you. Uh, now that you've heard her, remember it's Grand Illusion by Teresa Mato, available at your bookstore or online, and Not Invited to the Party by James Bennett, which will be available also in both places. Our Final uh, commentator today will be Hans A. von Spakovsky, who is Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, where he manages the Civil Justice Reform Initiative. In addition, von Spakovsky studies the legal aspects of elections, including campaign finance, voter fraud, and voter identification laws, and issues arriving from registration and equipment. Before jo joining Heritage, uh, in 2008, Hans served for two years as a member of the Federal Election Commission. Previously, he worked at the Justice Department as the counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. He provided expertise and advice on enforcing the Voting Rights Act and the Help America Vote Act of 2002. His articles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Weekly Standard, National Review, and Human Events, among others. He has testified before state and congressional committees and has made presentations to organizations such as the National Association of Secretaries of State, the Federalist Society, the National Council of State Legislatures, and the American Legislative Exchange Council. Hans took a law degree at Vanderbilt University. He received his bachelor's in political science from MIT. Please welcome Hans von Spakowski. So I am a lawyer, but I didn't go to Harvard. Does that give me some points? And we used to refer to Harvard uh, when I was at MIT as the little red schoolhouse down the road. <laughs> um, I have to say I agree with a lot of things that were said uh, here uh, this morning, particularly when Teresa was talking about how horrible the Federal Election Campaign Act is uh, and how confusing it is and how difficult it makes it for an ordinary person to run, run for office. Uh, in his new book, Professor Bennett outlines many of these problems. Uh, he also talks about many of the restrictions on uh, third parties caused by very difficult ballot access laws implemented by the states. Uh, he also complains about the federal public funding program, which, as most of you know, was uh, put in place about 30 years ago, and points out the problems with those states like Wisconsin that have put in state versions uh, uh, of public funding for state legislative candidates. 
those public funding programs have not achieved any of the uh, supposed purposes that so-called campaign reformers have used to push them. In fact, uh, even under public funding laws, challengers have a harder time uh, knocking off incumbents than I think under a private uh, system. Uh, I want to skip to the end of Professor Bennett's book by saying that I agree with many of his conclusions. For example, I agree that restrictive ballot access laws uh, should be relaxed as a matter of fundamental fairness uh, and in the interest of democracy, or in our case, republicanism, since we are a republic and not a democracy in the strictest sense of the word. Uh, I believe in competition, something John talked about, and I particularly believe in competition in the political arena. I also think the same thing about anti-fusion laws and also that the campaign finance law that we have on the federal level also needs to be uh, radically changed. Uh, however, I would have, I have arguments with some of the things that he says in the book. I mean, for example, you know, the idea that uh, doing all this is going to lead to some sort of renaissance in the American polity or provide a surge of new ideas or policies that are discussed, debated throughout the political world is, I think, an overly optimistic assumption. I also fundamentally disagree with the constant theme expressed throughout the book that there's no difference between the two major parties, that they're simply two sides of the same coin. That would come as quite a surprise to many of the legislators in Congress on the Republican side of the political aisle who right now and for the last couple of months have been waging quite a fight to try and stop the nationalization of our health care system and the destruction of our economy by the cap-and-tax system of environmental extremism that's being vigorously pushed by the president and his political party. I think those two issues alone illustrate some very stark differences in the public policy viewpoints of the Republican and Democratic parties, and I find it difficult to agree with the claim that the two parties are bereft of ideas and are simply vehicles that individuals use to achieve political power. There's no doubt there are, there are people in both parties that are like that, but I think that's true of all political parties. But there are also many individual members and candidates in those two parties and in the other independent parties who have fundamentally different outlooks on our Constitution, our governments, and our social and economic policies. And I think it's a denial of reality to claim otherwise. Now, critics of my point of view are going to point to some members of the Republican Party, like the two senators from Maine, who far too often vote with the other major party. But there's no party anywhere, and that includes the independent parties. Talked about in Professor Bennett's book, like the Green Party and the Libertarian Party, whose members agree 100% of the time on all issues, or who never agree with the views on certain issues of members of the other two major political parties. As I said, I also agree with Professor Bennett's description of the Federal Election Campaign Act and the amendments to it embodied in the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, also known as McCain-Feingold, which I had the misfortune to have to try to enforce when I was on the FEC. Now, I've expressed my opinion on this on more than one occasion. Uh, I got into big trouble at one of my first hearings uh, that we had when I was on the, on the FEC when I said to a member of a lawyer who was there from Democracy 21, which is one of the big campaign reform organizations, when I compared the uh, passage of the McCain-Feingold law to the passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts in 1798. And in fact, that 
the fact that I had said that at a hearing was cited against me publicly in the nomination fight I had uh, trying to get onto the FEC. Uh, as Dr. Bennett has pointed out, I think the Supreme Court made a fundamental error when it upheld the main parts of the FECA law in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision. And I got to tell you, having been a commissioner for two years at the FEC, I think it's a terrible idea to have a federal bureaucracy making decisions on what kind of political activity and what kind of political speech is acceptable or not acceptable under the force of federal law. I think the FECA law has protected incumbents and made it very difficult for ordinary citizens to run for office, as I've said, because it is a Byzantine and confusing law, and even the six commissioners who run it often disagree, doing their best as lawyers to try to figure out what the law prohibits and what it doesn't. I also think that the McCain-Feingold law is directly responsible for uh, the huge growth of 527 and other organizations like that because what it did in 2002 is it imposed a lot of restrictions on the political parties, the money they can get, and the activities they can engage in. And while you may not like particular political parties, uh, there's a lot more responsibility. You know, if you don't like the particular ads that a, a political party is running, well, there's things you can do. You know, you cannot give money to that political party. You can work against its candidates. Uh, it's hard to do that with a 527 organization. I do think, however, that Dr. Bennett makes a mistake in his book because he makes some sweeping generalizations about this area of the law that do a disservice uh, to a lot of very principled individuals that I've actually met and worked with in Washington. You know, he refers to all the commissioners who've served on the FEC as political hacks who only vote the way their political party wants them to. I can tell you that's false. I mean, I, I know most of the Republican commissioners who served on the FEC, including Bradley Smith, who I replaced. And in fact, Dr. Bennett quotes Bradley Smith uh, in his book. Look, FECA is a bad law, but all the commissioners that I knew there did their best to try to enforce that law uh, because they had taken an oath when they became commissioners to uphold the law. Uh, the claim that all of the votes that they make on the commission are party line votes is also demonstrably false. If you take a look at the history of voting on the FEC since the agency first came in 30 years ago, uh, you will find that in enforcement cases, so these are cases where they're deciding whether someone has violated the law, the number of split votes Remember, it's a six-member commission. There's three Republicans, three Democrats on there. The number of split votes where they can't make a decision is less than 1% of all cases. In fact, most of the cases aren't, are unanimous. So in terms of enforcing the law on a nonpartisan basis, whether the person in front of them is a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, uh, they don't vote on a party-line basis, and the history of the uh, FEC shows that. Now, where the split votes have occurred... And there were split votes when I was there. It has invariably been in areas of policy, new regulations, in areas where the law is uh, ambiguous and unclear. And I can tell you that I and the other Republican commissioners I knew, whenever there was a place where we could actually vote a less restrictive view of the law, that was the vote we took. And what you saw and what I saw was there wasn't so much 
a party breakdown based on party lines and party loyalty, but it was just the fact that most of the Republican commissioners, there were exceptions, were less regulatory-minded in the political area, and most of the Democratic commissioners were more regulatory-minded in that area. I'll give you one more fact that I think demonstrates uh, that the Republican commissioners don't like the FECA law and is not, are not part of some kind of conspiracy to keep this law in place to try to keep the independent parties and other parties out of uh, I recently, along with uh, seven other former Republican commissioners who represent almost every Republican commissioner that served on it, we recently filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court in the Citizens United case, which, as many of you may know, is a case uh, trying to get parts of the uh, McCain-Feingold law declared unconstitutional as a violation of the First Amendment. We didn't file on the side of the FEC and the law. We all filed on the side of Citizens United trying to convince the court that with our long experience, 75 years worth combined, of enforcing this law, we said to the court, this is an unenforceable, confusing law. It's unconstitutional. You should overturn it. Also, the idea that, uh, again, that Republicans are perfectly happy with this law and are part of some kind of democratic conspiracy to keep it in, uh, I think, again, is demonstrably not true. It's very true. Senator McCain is the poster child for this law, but he's almost alone on his side of the political aisle in uh, supporting this law. When the vote came down in 2002, the majority of Democrats voted for this law in the House and Senate. Only a st small minority of Republicans voted for it. The majority of Republicans voted against this law uh, because they didn't like it. And almost all of the major lawsuits that have been brought to try to get this law overturned uh, Republicans have filed them, including two pending uh, lawsuits right now, uh, which are going up against the restrictions on the parties, which, if frankly, if they win the case, will help the independent parties also, because these laws are arguing, for example, about uh, the restrictions placed on the parties for engaging in activity in state elections, like the elections going on in Virginia and New Jersey. Uh, two, two other points, just briefly, because I think we're running out of time here, right, right John? Yep. Um, first of all, the idea that having multiple parties instead of just two will somehow result in our solving the many problems we face today, like I said, I think is an optimistic assumption that doesn't really have a basis. Now, don't get me wrong. I think third parties and their candidates should be able to get on the ballot. I think they should be able to field candidates, and I'm hopeful that uh, doing so will enliven the political deb debate and discussions that go on in this country. And I don't think any of the parties should be getting public funding of any kind. In fact, I recently wrote an article in Politico going against the latest proposal that's in Congress, been proposed by Senator Durbin, that would not only, you know, we would not only have funding for presidential campaigns, but he's proposing funding for congressional campaigns. But Look, there are numerous counties, uh, numerous countries in Europe, such as Italy, that have multiple parties that split the reins of power. And they often find themselves unable to take any actions in terms of government policy that are at all controversial because they find it impossible to put together majority coalitions that can get anything done. The more parties you have sharing control of the government, I think the more difficult it is to have effective governance. 
I also don't like proportional representation in voting, and I disagree with the idea that requiring candidates in districts to win a majority of the vote is somehow a bad requirement for the democratic process. I think it's a good requirement. It means the candidates have to field ideas and solutions to problems that a majority of voters think is a good idea. The majority vote requirement forces candidates to try to build coalitions and deal with multiple interest groups, which I think creates better overall representation. Frankly, it also prevents individuals who have radical ideas that only a small minority of voters agree with from getting elected to positions where they may have considerable power to implement their particular views that a majority of Americans do not agree with. Thus, it can potentially prevent changes in economic, social, and government policy that go against the consent of the governed. And the consent, uh, consent of the governed is the most basic philosophical and political belief that this country is based on. Overall, I think this is a very informative book. It points out inequities in our laws that govern our election process that I think should be fixed. I would not agree with some of the characterizations contained in it, but I agree with many of the proposed solutions, such as simplifying ballot access and moving to a much less restrictive campaign finance system. Thanks. Thank you very much, Hans. I, I'm sure the, the speeches we've heard today have given everyone uh, food for thought and also prompted some questions. So we're going to have questions now. Please uh, raise your hand and wait for the microphone to come. And then when you get it, identify yourself, an organization you're uh, involved with or your affiliation. And also, please direct a question to one of the people up here uh, so that they can respond to it. Uh, let's go with the gentleman down here. Uh, the microphone, please. I'm uh, Robert Steele. Is this working? Um, from Virginia's 11th District. Um, my question, and I regret that Jackie Salen, uh, Salen and Cynthia McKinney are not here. It's an honor to be in a room with Ralph Nader and with all of you. Uh, why can't we get everybody to play well together? And take the ideas in Ralph Nader's book. There are eight fundamental Electoral Reform Act principles. Why can't we get the Greens, the Libertarians, and the Independents to basically demand of Obama, as the price of anything in 2010, that he pass the Electoral Reform Act of 2009? Uh, I'll assume everyone. Yes. Go ahead. Go, Jim. Well, I have no problem with that. I think it's a wonderful idea. We just need to you know, open up. We need new choices and new voices. And actually, you know, third parties, independent candidates do just what Cato is trying to do and what Heritage is trying to do. They're trying to re uh, increase the range of political debate. And, you know, I'm not saying that the Republicans and Democrats don't, you know, agree on everything, but the idea is they, they enforce conformity and, you know, if you want to move up into the national kind of role, you have to conform at the local level to get into the state level and so on and so forth. And the idea is we need a lot more choices and a lot more voices. That's, that's the whole idea here. Teresa? This is on? Yes, they're on. Oh, good to meet you in person, Mr. Steele. Uh, thank you for coming. And uh, I'd like to uh, say it's really um, uh Minor parties and uh, third parties and independents—they don't all have obviously the same platform. Just uh, they, so they can get together and should get together on removing the systemic 
uh, barriers uh, to entry. But after that, they will compete for uh, the votes of the American people on their own and from their own ideological perspectives and their uh, various platforms. It's really not their job to fix the entire electoral process. It's all of our jobs as as citizens. And I, I want to make something clear so that we can percolate some questions here. I don't agree with most of Mr. Uh, what Mr. Von Spakowski said and the solutions that have been proposed by either of these two gentlemen. I am for public financing of campaigns. I am for proportional representation and instant runoff voting. I am for choice maximizing systems on how we are able to select um, uh, our, our candidates. And I'm not for corporations being able to dive bomb into people's districts and, and be able to finance and uh, particular candidates. I don't believe they hold the same rights that uh, we do as individuals, and they certainly don't have the right to vote, at least not yet. So I hope that will help uh, uh, inspire some questions and, and we'll talk about because we all we certainly all don't agree on what the solutions are, even though some of us do agree on what the problems are. Yeah. Well, that's why uh, people of all political stripes have to not just talk to people in their own uh, cultural cul-de-sacs and come out and uh, come talk at Cato or come talk at uh, the uh, other organizations that should host these kind of events. There are a number of organizations in this room, uh, not only... Christina Tobin's with uh, free and equal elections, but there's also representatives here from FairVote, FairVote.org, and as well as Citizens in Charge, the Citizens in Charge Foundation. There are a lot of organizations who are starting to work on these systemic problems, and I hope they will uh, pipe up too. You want to say something to that? Uh, my, my only, my only response to uh, that proposal is good. Good luck trying to convince the president to do anything that might diminish his re-election prospects in 2012. Uh, this gentleman right here will go to the right side of the room now. Mr. Spakowski, my, my name is Spear Lancaster. Uh, Mr. Spakowski said he, too many parties might make it impossible to govern. And what I want to know is what's magic about two? Why not go for one? Arguably, we have I, that. I think you're, you're mischaracterizing what I said. I, I, what I'm saying is I think the ballot access laws should be relaxed so that third and fourth and fifth parties can get on there. But the idea that that will somehow magically uh, solve many of the problems we have, uh, I think, is, is belied by the fact that you, you can see, look at plenty of other democracies that have multiple parties, and they face many of the same problems we do and aren't, don't seem to be any better in in uh, finding solutions to them. Let me po use the uh, privilege of the moderator to ask a question here. Is it, uh, uh, the experts here, do you believe that third parties and a larger role for third parties implies proportional representation, either, one, either just changing the system or also some voting procedure that would give you that? Or can you do it in a single-member district? Well, um, first of all, I want to go back uh, to put this in context. You know, in the last uh, 30 years, there's been a wave of democratization uh, in in the world uh, where we've had a lot of uh, countries who weren't dem democracies or democratic republics or whatnot uh, who have chosen to um, uh, become um, uh, more democratic. And uh, uh, in that wave, not one has chosen to adopt uh, the United States system. 
and we should ask why, uh, because it doesn't provide the same kind of representation. I do believe we should have uh, uh, proportional representation, and, 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 and if we don't get there yet, choice maximizing voting systems or in combination thereof, because, for example, how many people saw the front page New York Times article on uh, Wednesday, October 7th, and they talked about New York City had an election, a runoff election, right? And uh, in a city of 8 million people, almost nobody uh, showed up to vote. Uh, Three million registered Democrats, and you had some districts where actually nobody, nobody came to vote. I mean, we can do better than this, and so maybe we, maybe, and and I would start, I would start with the Constitution because I don't, I believe we should start looking at uh, things like the Electoral College, which are anachronistic now, and I know those might be fighting words here, but I'm happy to engage and uh, think about how we want to improve our system. Our system was, you know, great maybe for the 18th century, but we are now in the 21st century, and there have been kinds of systems devised that can be applied, that can do things that, that can make the electoral system more reflective of the will of the people. At the end of the day, if you want consent to come from the governed, we have to look at how we vote and the systems in place that offer choices for who we can vote for in order to be able to uh, maximize consent of the governed. I'll second that. I'll, I'll, I think that's excellent. Anything on that? Um, Thanks very much. Now, let's go down front here with Christina and then the gentleman behind her. Hello, my name is Christina Tobin. I'm the founder and chair of the Free and Equal Elections Foundation, uh, the former national ballot access coordinator for Ralph Nader 2008, and also the libertarian candidate, um, sorry, seeking libertarian uh, nomination for California Secretary of State. Uh, my question is, Currently, an initiative in support of the top two primary is on the ballot in California for June 2010. Top two primary is in which the top two vote-getters in the primary are the only names to appear on the November ballot, even if that means only one political party is represented. The top two primary is the biggest threat to the existence of minor parties in over 50 years, according to Richard Wingard, Winger, that is, world-renowned ballot access expert. My question is, uh, and also wanted to also reform and also mention in Washington State of almost 200 races, there were only eight candidates that did not advance to the general election. I'm sorry, there are only eight candidates that did advance the general election because they ran in unopposed races. In Washington State, they passed the top two primary in 2006. My question is, what is your position on the top two primary, and how do you think this will impact third-party and independent candidate races nationwide? Thank you very much. Any, any, well, I, 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 don't, I don't like that idea because I frankly think each of the political parties should have whoever their nominee is uh, on the ballot during the general election. And, uh, you know, the, like I said, the ballot access rules ought to be relaxed so you can do that. that uh, that's just kind of an extension of this kind of open primary system that some states have tried to put in uh, that can end up with, you know, two candidates from the same party being on the general election ballot and everybody else excluded. And I don't think, I don't think that's a good idea, and I don't think that's the way we should be doing races. I, I have to say that for all of the criticisms given of, of parties and, you know, as factions and so forth, uh, parties are simply an expression of a very fundamental right that's contained in the First Amendment which is the right to associate with people who have the same beliefs and views that, that you do. 
And, you know, I don't have a problem with political parties. In fact, I think they're not that much different from or other organizations that people belong to, like, you know, the Sierra Club or the National Rifle Association, because they represent issues that the people that are members agree with, and the political parties are like that. I do think we ought to have a system where people can form political parties easily, get on the ballot, and run their uh, nominees for election. You know, if nobody votes for them, well, you know, then they don't have the ideas that the majority of voters like. But, you know, let voters make that decision. Any comment? Yes. Um, following up, uh, you know, I think it, I think it was Pew that put out a study in May of 2009 that said we are at our highest point in 70 years uh, for people self-identifying as independents in this country. Uh, I'm not for the top two uh, uh, idea. I think we ought to get away from the number two. Uh, all together here because what is happening is that it's a funneling process and what it does is it it's very unlikely that an independent or third party candidate would emerge in that top two. That kind of winnowing is exactly the opposite of what we should be trying to do which is expand choice in the general election and uh, people uh, should you know learn more about this system but I don't want the media reducing choice. I don't want debate commissions or the parties for example how they kicked out Dennis Kucinich and Senator Mike Gravel, even in the two major parties, winnowing choice. I want to make it possible that more people and more choices are in front of the American uh, uh, people and are able to participate. And that's why I think that the Federal Election Commission, going back, um, that we need to uh, view campaign finance laws, which I'm in favor of, uh, more like tax policy. And we have to say we don't want it just not to... um, have a corruptive effect, but we want to also look at how can government facilitate the participation of people, and how can, like good tax policy, we reward behaviors we want to see and discourage behaviors we don't want to see, and that we should use that mindset uh, when we're looking at uh, constructing the campaign finance laws. Just a moment. We're going to run a little bit late because we got started a little bit late and because there's lots of interest out there. And I want to get to as many people as possible. I said the gen- – yeah. Sorry. Uh, with all due respect to Teresa, Sorry. the whole problem with having the extensive tax policy we have is because you have government bureaucrats deciding what social policies should be encouraged and what shouldn't. And I have to agree completely with what – Uh, James Bennett said when he said the biggest problem in Washington is that the government is too big, too powerful, and that's why so many people spend so much time trying to influence to benefit them. And what is true for tax policy is also very true of uh, federal campaign finance laws, okay? Look, the commissioners I served with on the FEC were all very well-meaning people, but, you know, they were six people uh, over – a federal bureaucracy of, of almost 400 individuals. And you do not want government bureaucrats making decisions on what kind of political activity should be encouraged or discouraged in the political arena. People should be free to act as they want to and to speak as they want to. And I would say to you, compare the federal system with two states, Virginia, Utah, that have no restrictions on contributions. They do require disclosure. And Governing Magazine rates Utah and Virginia as having two of the best-run governments in the United States. And you tell me whether you think Virginia government is, or Utah state government, 
are they somehow much more corrupt than the, fe- the federal government and the federal system? Most people in those states would tell you they think they probably have a cleaner government than the federal system. I promise the gentleman behind Christina. Uh, thank you. My name is Aaron Rose. Actually, uh, my, I live in Seattle, Washington, and uh, my question, one question was just asked. Uh, I want to go back actually to the question then, and I voted for Ralph Nader, and I'm still repenting for that sin. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I hope that's tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> um, I want to go to the question about um, voter turnout. A very elementary question. Is there a correlation between an increase of voter turnout and support for the third party and even some of the campaign finance reform versus if there are lower turnout. I mean, other than special every four years, high-profile elections, voter turnout in the United States is very, very low. Uh, And just want to add to uh, uh, Dr. Bennett's point, you mentioned Iran, which is a very good example. I believe Afghanistan had up to 28 candidates on their ballot, including uh, some women. So I think uh, it's a very good point. Thank you. Any comments on that? Well, you address this in your book, right? Yeah, well, put it this way. If you honestly believe that there's not that much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, I mean, why vote? That's the point. And I think a lot of issues that should have been debated. Now, uh, Ralph is very good at this. You may not agree with his positions, but the idea is he wants to put this stuff on the table and get it out there and let you know people want to talk about this. He wants to talk about you know labor issues and 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 trade issues and things like that. And you don't really get this very much. Uh, uh, everything's clustered in the in the center, and the idea is to spread the ideas uh, about. And you know Hans has been talking about the fact that well, uh, you know if you have multiple parties. Government may not be as easy. Governing may not be as easy, and it may be different. Well, that may be a a very good thing, frankly. I mean, you look at our government. How effective are these people anyway? I mean, talk about the SEC and and the Madoff situation. You talk about, hey, we've got the federal emergency management thing and and then Katrina, and then there's always this thing called the United States Postal Service. I don't know where they get the service from, but nevertheless – and it may be a, a good thing to have less government and a less effective government. Now, it, we may be very fortunate we don't get all the government we pay for. Well, I, can I answer the gentleman's uh, question? There have been studies uh, on this, and one a, a good book to read would be uh, Thomas Patterson's uh, The Vanishing Voter, uh, where he interviewed uh, like something like 90,000 uh, voters. But there is a correlation. Um, first, you see a correlation in interest in the election itself uh, when you look at the viewership that turned out for Ross Perot compared to the other debates that didn't have a third party or minor candidate. And second, yes, that's one of the factors that people cite in why they don't go vote. Now, it's not the first factor, a lot of times it's convenience. You know, I can't get to the polls. I have to go home for my kids. I have to work, whatever. Um, but it is one of the factors is that there is not the range of choice. And so uh, uh, there, are, there are a number of studies that have been done on this. There probably should be more. Uh, I'm going to defend the civil service here uh, and, uh, and say that, and I think it would be fair 
more fair to say that there are things that are ineffectively regulated, there are things that are overregulated, and there are things that are underregulated. And we could probably be here another uh, 2,000 years debating that uh, here in this room. Uh, but there, what we need to do is I, I, the system is broken. And even uh, the commissioners at the FEC sent a letter to Congress and said, please, let's fix the presidential financing system. And so there is an admission that some parts of the system have to be fixed. And so one answer is not just to do nothing or have no government. We actually have to work at these hard questions, and they're not, uh, they're not facile uh, answers. The woman on the aisle here on the right side. Thank you. Uh, my name is Annabelle Fisher. I live in Northern Virginia. Professor Bennett, if I see one more negative TV ad from this governance race, I will tell you. And I've also lived in Seattle, Washington, so I know how things go. I'd like to throw a couple of things out to you all. Um, I do believe the American, I think to the gentleman from Seattle, people don't vote because they don't have choices. Alexandria just changed the way that against the public opinion in Alexandria, Virginia, how we are going to elect the next mayor and council and school board in order to increase voter turnout so it would be in the election cycle with the president. Uh, Seattle, Washington State has a million things on the ballot in the, in the election year. So what I'd like to throw out to you all, I am for proportional representation. I agree with that. I am against campaign finance reform because in Virginia, anybody and their mother can set up a PAC, and I think that would go against the campaign finance laws or reform. What do you think of having open primaries where you have now the heads of the Democrat and Republican Party say, oh, yeah, you can vote in an open primary, but you have to declare your party. So uh, rather in the general, you can vote for whoever you want. That would be the first thing. So that it would allow more people who choose to run for office uh, to be on that ballot without perhaps gathering the signatures. And the second thing is I think if there's any movement, and I do believe today with the health care reform debate, with other issues that are coming up today, there are many more people now who are looking at voting for an independent person. But I believe it has to start at the local level, the local and state level. And you can't have somebody running for president who's never held office before. So I'm throwing those two issues out to anyone out there. And May the best person win in Virginia, and may the election be over soon. Thank you. Uh, Jim, you want to start? Well, uh, I'm not quite sure what your question was. But uh, be, beyond that, I, I'm just for anything. I, I think it's un-American to try to close things down and, 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 and oppress people and, and keep people off the ballot and so on and so forth. And I think we need whatever we can do to encourage, you know, New voices, new choices. I think it's very important. And uh, uh, I don't know if, if, if moving elections, for example, to a presidential year would, uh, you know, would guarantee better people in office or, or whatnot. But it just seems to me that we need a lot more issues and ideas on the table. And that's kind of what I, uh, uh, where I, I come from in this. The open primary. Yeah, the open primary. Well, that that would be fine. I, I that that helps open up the, the the process. That's that was exactly what I was saying. Yeah, I'm all in favor of of anything that opens the process up. 
Teresa, you want to say? Well, the only thing I'll say about the primary system is, look, the, yeah, you want to have an open election system, but you also want the parties to be able to have some control over what they do, and I don't care whether it's the Democratic Republican Party or the Libertarian Party, and all of those parties do not want people coming in and voting in their primary fights who are not, don't really believe in their ideas, but are only there to spoil the choice, okay? And I recall that uh, one of the Green Party candidates was a Cynthia McKinney said that one of the reasons she got defeated was because uh, in the Democratic primary election and one of her prior elections, uh, Republicans crossed over the line to vote for the opponent to her so that she would lose. And I, I don't. I think parties, you know, we've gone a long way, as actually Jim Bennett describes in his book, towards having the government take over many things that the parties did previously. And while I agree with some of those, like I don't agree with his criticism of the Australian ballot, which the main part of was to make sure we had a secret ballot, which I think is vital to democracy. But, but I don't think that having switching to a primary system where the parties have absolutely no control over the process and have absolutely no control about uh, who comes in and vote, I, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, unless you really want to destroy having any parties at, at all. Gentlemen, the second roll from the back. We'll get away from the, the front a little bit and getting close to the end. Uh, yes, I'm Brandon Holmes, grassroots director of uh, Citizens in Charge and the Citizens in Charge Foundation. Uh, I want to give uh, Teresa an opportunity to expand on some of her proposed solutions. Uh, one of my personal objections to public finance has always been that the funds would presumably be controlled by the existing parties and the existing people in power. And, uh, and I wonder if you can address how that would help third parties out if, uh, if you have to go and, and essentially knock on the door of the existing powers to, to get into that. One of the reasons I'm in favor of public financing is to encourage and help encourage uh, participation so you don't have to be born uh, a billionaire or uh, have access to a millionaire's Rolodex in order to be able to participate in elections in the United States. I don't think that's what uh, the founding fathers had in mind in terms of citizens being able to run for office. Public financing allows uh, small start candidacies people who are running independent, small parties, to have at least uh, a little bit of a contribution in order to be able to get to the point where they can compete and, and have their candidacy in front of the American voter. I'll give you an example. Ralph Nader is one of the only uh, candidates in the last um, three elections who has qualified uh, as a minor party or third party and independent as um, uh, for public financing for matching funds in the primary. First of all, as Jim pointed out, uh, the, the statute is written so that it, uh, you're not going to get uh, as a minor party or independent uh, general election financing unless you've already proved in the past election that you could garner 5% of the vote. So that's of absolutely no use in the current election if you're a minor party or, or independent. Um, but it does allow what it does allow and what was critical in both the 2000 and 2004 and, um, and the 2008 campaign, which I did not run, uh, is to be able to have uh, funds to be able to overcome the ballot access problems uh, and be able to actually get on the radar screen. If you're not on the ballot, 
you're not on the radar screen. Uh, write-in votes uh, rarely win in, the, in history, and write-in votes, another flaw, are not even counted. One of the chapters in my book is uh, uh, does uh, talk about how the Supreme Court has enshrined uh, the two-party system and has become the protector of the incumbents and the two parties instead of the defender of people who are trying to uh, participate in the system. The last chapter of the book does deal with a number of solutions, everything from whether or not we touch the Constitution and the Electoral College to how to make it more fair for people to have a chance to be able to uh, to run. I discuss the National uh, the National Vote Plan Act. I discussed uh, redistricting. I mean, at the local level, to get back to this uh, woman's uh, question here, uh, oftentimes we don't have two parties. We just have one party. Uh, there's nobody else even running in these elections. So your choice has become one individual. Sometimes they, they just even cancel the election. They did that in Florida because it was a foregone conclusion. Do we really want... Uh, government where the 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 candidate uh, the 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 elected are, are foregone conclusions because nobody else has a chance to run. I don't think so. One last question, the gentleman here, and then we'll go to lunch. Well, just wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. My name is Arnold King, and I live in Maryland, where it's a one-party state. I like to thank you all for having this discussion because this is a very interesting discussion. So. Uh, my question is, what can we do to get politicians to understand the election process? In other words, understand election rule, procedure, and other. Also, how can we get the election process to work in the 21st century? Because seeing it, it uh, they, a lot of states that had too many in the Northeast, they had a, one, a, a political party, Don A, and in the South, they had another party, Don A, and, uh, and the worker, and other, and so forth. Thank you. Thank you. Jim, comments? Well, I think I outlined the fact that what we need to do is to remove impediments to participation. And the main impediment is ballot access laws and uh, uh, make it easy for people to get on the ballot, have a free-for-all, you know, uh, the more the merrier kind of thing, and have it sorted out. uh, by the American people, that's that's what I think we need to do is to open up the process rather than have it closed as it is now uh, to a great degree. Closing remarks, Teresa, or answers? Well, the the easy thing and the shameless one for me to say it would be to read my book, Grand Illusion, the, <laughs> the, the myth of voter choice and two party tyranny, because I do talk in the last chapter uh, very in very detail about uh, the kinds of things we can do in this country to make a more fair system and have uh, have uh, maximized voter choice and and importantly. Um, uh, fulfill the voters' rights by helping uh, acknowledge the candidates' rights to be able to run for office. Thank you. Oh, uh, in that light, it also may be that a contribution to the Cato Institute would advance. <laughs> Hans, please. Yeah, don't forget, don't forget heritage when it comes to that yeah. too. Um, well, I actually want to go back to a, an earlier question real quick, just to make one final point, and that is on public funding. Okay, there's a fundamental problem with public funding. And, the, you know, Teresa mentioned the fact that the FEC commissioners wrote to Congress, say, you got to fix it. Well, what they were talking about was there isn't enough money in the fund to pay for it. Well, why isn't there enough money in the fund? Because the American people don't want to fund it. It's purely voluntary. When the program first went into place, and Jim talks about this in his book, about 
25, at, at one point it went up to 30 percent of the American people did the voluntary checkoff for the presidential public funding program. Uh, in the last year they did numbers, is down to about 8 percent. The only way you can fund a public funding program for elections, and I don't care whether it's on the federal level or the state level, is through taxation. And that is a fundamental violation of my First Amendment rights uh, to associate with people that I want to associate with, to use my tax money to pay for the political campaigns of somebody who I fundamentally disagree with. That is a that is such a violation of the Bill of Rights that, you know, it's hard for me to believe people keep pushing the, the public funding uh, uh, idea. And frankly, raising money when you're a, a candidate going out and raising private money. Look, my experience is, is that people give money to people whose ideas they like. Okay, and when you're out raising money, if you can't raise any money, nobody wants to give you money, well, it's because people don't like your ideas and they don't like the solutions you're proposing to the problems we have. And I just don't have a problem with people going out and having to raise money to run their campaigns. If you take off the limits on campaign contributions, people will be able to raise the money to run campaigns and they're not going to have to be billionaires to do it. Those of you who didn't get to ask your questions will be able to ask them of our panelists now that we're going up to lunch. I want to join you in thanking all three of us for coming here today and speaking. Please go upstairs and have lunch. No taxpayer money involved.